So we are looking at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We finished up Matthew chapter 23 last time and kind of rounded out the final condemnations against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests. Um, the final kind of message to them and to call out their hypocrisy, to point out um, their derision, their disobedience, their unbelief, to hopefully bust their bubble so that the ongoing church beyond them would not be deceived by their self-righteous piety. And so then, after that, okay, you get into chapter 24. And chapter 24 is really 24, 25 kind of meshed together into one topic um, where Jesus is talking about some things of the future, okay? Things in the not-so-distant future and, I think, things in the very much distant future um, that are still going on today. So what we'll do is we're going to read chapter 24. I'm going to try to read it quickly um, so that we get kind of the context and the entirety of chapter 24 And then we're going to go back and we're going to take a portion of it this afternoon. So chapter 24, starting in verse 1 of Matthew says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came with him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, See you not all of these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and shall be, and you shall be hated by of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Jerusalem or in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are, are with child and to them that are, give suck in those days. But pray you that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there there is Christ, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect." 
Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall, all, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other." Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise you, when you shall see these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour no man knows, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the man, Son of Man be." Then shall there two be two people in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what, in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes." Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say to you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the, with the drunken, the Lord of that servant, sh servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's all of chapter 24, and there's a lot of stuff in that, and we're going to break it up and talk about it each week. So in the first section of this, there's two things we need to grab. Number one, that there are, this is a prophecy of the end. It's just there's kind of more than one end to be taken into consideration in this. It addresses two realities, in my opinion. One is the immediate Jewish reality, and the other is the future world reality, Okay. And it's also important to note that you have to keep in mind the different contexts as well as the immediate future context that he is talking about. Okay, the immediate and future context that he's talking about. You have to keep kind of both of those in mind. And you also have to kind of realize that a lot of times with prophecy, even Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, there 
it's not that he is continuing one thought, okay? He's going to talk about one thing. The next time he'll talk about another thing. The next time he may come back to the first thing. And then the next time he may come back to the second thing. You see that a lot when you go through the book of Revelations. Revelations chapter 1 is not starting in AD 70 and chapter 21 ending in AD, you know, 150 or 1000 or 2. It's not, it's not that every one of those events are coming in a chronological order. It's talking about events in the future, events in the past, events in the past that affected events in the future. So sometimes it's hard to differentiate kind of those things. So when we're talking about this in chapter 24, keep that in mind because a lot of people will take this and they'll just go check, check, check. This is the order. And you go from there and it can get kind of confusing because you are missing some future context woven into immediate context and vice versa. Okay. There's some things in here that were fulfilled very much in the immediate context and that will also be filled in a future context. So it's very hard to tell you A, B, C, and D, this is how it's going to work. Okay, so keep that in mind as we go through this so that we don't get confused. But notice that the disciples are responding to a statement that Jesus made. Jesus walks out of the temple after just basically leveling every single hypocrite, every single religious elite, the whole ecclesiastical society there. He put them all to shame. And now he's, you know, dropped the mic and walked out of the temple. Okay. On his way out, the disciples who were probably like agape, mouths open. How could he talk to these people this way? I can't believe he got away with that. Don't, doesn't he know who these people are? As they're walking out, goes, but Jesus, look at this temple. Look how amazing it is. Look at the works that have been wrought by our hands. Look how magnificent this temple is. And Jesus is like, that temple will not be here. That temple is going away. In fact, everything you look at, there's not going to be one stone stacked upon another, which means it's going to be leveled to the ground. Which, you know, again, is something that would be very astonishing to them. What do you mean this is going to happen? What do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? Why would the temple be destroyed of all places? Why would you destroy your temple? So it's got to be kind of shocking to the disciples. So then they want to know, okay, when's this going to happen? Give us the skinny on this, Jesus. Let us in on the secret. Let us know because we really don't want to be around when that happens. And then number two, that's pretty fantastic. Maybe we want to be watching from afar. Give us kind of some ideas about what's going on when this is going to happen. Okay. Now, when you look in Mark's account in, in Luke's too, I'm pretty sure, you don't have the third question the disciples ask. The disciples ask three questions. They say, number one, What shall be the sign or when shall these things happen? Okay. When are these things going to happen? That's number one. Number two is what shall be the sign of your coming? And the third question of when shall be and what shall be the sign of the end of the world? Okay. That third question doesn't pop up in Mark, but it does here in Matthew. Okay. And you got to, you got to look from a kind of Jewish perspective on this. If Jerusalem, if the temple is going to be utterly destroyed, that would be an end of time marker for them. Okay. Why? Because they're expecting a natural kingdom. They're expecting the kingdom to come back. 
It's got to have the temple in it. That's what the king. That's the centerpiece of the kingdom. If the centerpiece of the kingdom is being utterly destroyed, then you must be talking about the entirety of the kingdom being permanently erased. And when's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen when the Lord finally comes back and wipes the entire world clean like he did in Noah's days. I mean, that's what we're looking at here. You're talking about the day when you come back and everything gets dissolved. So when's that going to happen? What's the sign of it? Tell me when these things are going to come about. Give us a warning about what's going to happen. Okay. So again, you have a proximal interpretation of this, though. Something in proximity. That's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem, the dissolution of the Jewish state. Okay? But what was probably hard for them to grasp and hard for them to kind of think about in this is the distal interpretation of this. Okay? The distal interpretation woven into this is the destruction of the world and the dissolution of all kingdoms. Okay, so the proximal is the dissolution of the Jewish state. The distal is the dissolution of all states. Okay, when all kingdoms get dissolved, when every knee bows, when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, that ultimate end day when everything gets hit to reset. Okay, so those are the two kind of interpretations you're going to have in this. And that's what we're going to be kind of threading the needle with. Okay, and seeing kind of evaluating which is coming to where. Now, the, the present situation that he starts describing is one of just roses and sunshine, okay? Everything he starts to talk about is just, I mean, should just get everybody excited. There's going to be many coming and proclaiming to be me. And that may be false Christs who literally rose up and said, I am the Messiah, which we know did happen. But there was also plenty of false people who claimed the name of Christ, okay? We have Simon Magus being one of them, right? One of the people you see in Acts that was using, trying to use the power and the things that the apostles obtained from Christ to basically gain money and fame and power and all those things. So you had plenty of false things going on like that. There were other kind of pseudo-rebellions that happened with the, with the Jews trying to overthrow Rome. They kind of claimed Messianic things before Christ and after Christ. There's obviously a lot of that that goes on. But again, as we saw with the Pharisees, we have to be careful not to narrow down too much because I really feel like this can apply to many, many, many other people. Okay, it's not people just coming up saying, no, 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 I'm the Christ. I'm your Messiah. Listen to me. But people who will take on things of Christ go out to deceive for their own selfish gain and glory. Okay, there's plenty of those that did that. There are plenty of Jews that went out into the New Testament church and started saying, yeah, Christ is really good and we believe in this whole church thing, but you really need to be keeping the law and being circumcised. And that's not just the Pharisees we were talking about who were within the church who just honestly felt compelled that they needed to be circumcised. We're talking about people that were talked about in the Galatian letter who were maliciously okay, circumventing Jesus and saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but circumcision is really what you're going to have to have. Okay, so that that's the kind of deception that goes on. Plus, there's some bigger things that are going to go on here, too. Okay, and I think there's actually bigger things with this that go in from a proximal to a very distal interpretation that goes throughout a lot of history with the church. Okay, 
So there's two different areas we're looking at. There's two different concepts we're looking at. But the first thing that Jesus does is describes the state of the world as it's going to be. Okay, You're going to have false professors, false teachers, and deception begin, obviously. That's just the natural course of things, isn't it? When something gets going good, you got to have somebody come in and try to mess it up. The second thing is that you're going to see unrest around the world. Okay? Wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. I mean, just all together a grand old time that Jesus is telling them about. And then Jesus describes these as the quote-unquote beginning of sorrows, or which literally means the beginning of labor pains. Okay? So he's using this kind of allegory, he's using this picture of labor pains, right? The groans, the pains, the contractions, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, everything that goes along with that. You get the image of the world itself going through these labor pains in anticipation of something being born, okay? Paul kind of uses that same imagery when he describes in Romans that the whole creation is groaning together, waiting for the redemption. Those groans is not like old man getting up in the morning groans. They were groans tied to labor pains, okay? And what we see coming of this, what's the, what's the end of all this? What are we seeing as the resolution of all this? What's the thing that's being born through all of this? Well, ultimately, it's the restitution and resolution of all things. Okay, that's the ultimate distal interpretation that comes from this. Jesus' final reset button setting everything right. Okay? So that's the thing that's groaning at this point. That's the labor pains that the world is going through and ultimately will end in the birthing, so to speak, of that new existence where Jesus has set everything right. So very much keeping with that kind of birthing analogy, you go through all the labor pains because you get the joy of the child coming in the end. And that sets the scene for everything going forward there. Some people will talk about how you just completely forget the pain. My wife has completely told me over and over again that that's not the case. (laughs) But no, very much, you don't. (laughs) Maybe I did, but in this, you know, so it is, that's not always true, but... I think we'd still all agree, even as bad as it was, we really do like the people that came from it, okay? So keep that in mind, two possibilities, and keep also the description that Jesus is giving here. You've got a very bleak scene being set. Notice that Jesus didn't come in with some message of, guys, the next decade or two are going to be fabulous. It's going to be great. Everything's awesome. Not to quote the Lego music movie too much, but everything is awesome, Okay. Everything's great. No problems. In fact, he says, guys, it's going to be rough. If you thought it was rough now, it's only going to get worse. You know, there's phrases that tie along with that that I do think apply here, even as kind of cheesy and, um, and, and, and whatever as they may be. But, you know, it's described over and over again that night is darkest before the dawn. Sorrow lasts for a, night, a, a nighttime, but then joy comes in the morning. All of these kind of allegories giving the fact that a lot of times you have to go through some rough stuff before you get to that promised rest of peace. I mean, that's just, and that's just, I think, human experience. You can see that. 
It's nice when that's not the case. It's nice when you wake up in that morning and there's joy and you go to bed that night and there's joy and the next morning you wake up, it's still joy. And it's just never bleak and there's never groanings and there's never travails, but that's just not the case for everybody. And that's not the case on a consistent basis throughout your entire life. So here though, when you look at what he's describing, the first section that we're going to kind of take is from verse 4 to verse 14. And that's where he talks about the false Christ, the deceivers that will come to deceive many, the wars, the rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, all of these earthly calamities, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, all these things happening, those being the beginning of sorrows, not the end and not the middle, but the actual beginning. This is just getting started with all this. Then he goes into the next section, which is a very much a proximal interpretation. I think that sometimes... You know, we think of it as kind of a distal interpretation, and there might be, again, two and one in this case. But here he says, after these things start, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. They shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then you shall have many be offended, and many will betray another, and others will hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, the immediate interpretation of that is the apostles, the disciples, the prophets, all the ones that Jesus sent that came after him were very much treated this way. Okay, They took them, they beat them, they stoned them, if we remember Stephen. They beheaded them, they crucified them upside down. I mean, they did all, they, they treated them poorly, okay? I mean, that's just evident. That's a very immediate warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples. It's like, guys, don't be surprised when I step off the scene when this stuff starts happening to you. Which is why, which is why Paul can, or Peter can then respond to these statements of Jesus. Okay? When Peter is taken and beaten and thrown in prison and then gets out and starts shouting for joy and rejoicing, saying, I rejoice that I have been able to share in the sufferings of my Lord. Peter wasn't caught by off guard. In fact, he was like, hey, Jesus said this was coming. It's happened. Hallelujah. I'm just getting to do what Jesus did. And I'm getting to live what Jesus said was going to happen to me. Praise God. So there was a very immediate thing that happened with this. Remember, Jesus has just the previous chapter condemned these Jews who were so self-righteous and so pious who said, we would never kill the prophets. If we'd been back there in daddy's day, we would have never done those things. And he's like, guys, I'm about to send you prophets. You're going to kill them too. Congratulations. Like father, like son. I mean, he's already told them that. It's just like five or six verses ago. Okay. And now he's telling his disciples, guys, guess what? You remember what I just told to the Pharisees? I hate to break it to you. You are the apostles. You are the prophets. You are the messengers who are going to go forward and they're going to take you and they're going to kill you. Okay? They're going to take you before their synagogues and they're going to kick you out and they're going to treat you badly and they're going to throw you to the side and they're going to stone you. They're going to do all these horrible things to you. Be of good cheer. <laughs> Have fun. So, I mean, that's the kind of scene that he's setting for them. Saying, guys, this is an immediate interpretation. This is a proximal prophecy. This is going to happen to you. This is one of those things that's going to come to pass before this generation passes away. Okay? Now, the persecution of the Christians, though, as we saw, you know, he goes on to say it's not just with the Jews, it's with 
all nations that you're going to be hated because of my name. Okay. Now, again, the reason that I say some of these things are most certainly proximal and not distal is because at this point in time, you can't really claim that. Okay. As bad as we may think some countries view Christians, in reality, you see a Christian resurgent in company in countries that are have, have been hostile to Christians for years, okay? You've got a Christian resurgence in Iran and Iraq and in China and places where that has not been the case for decades, okay? So it's really hard to go, okay, well, we're really not at this kind of doom and gloom, everybody's hating us kind of place. But they were most certainly in that, and they stayed in that for a couple of hundred years, Okay? We know the Christians were persecuted by the Romans and by the Greeks and by all these other Western influential intellectual countries. Okay? They would love to round up Christians and throw them to lions. All right? That's just what they did. We know Paul's story. We know how that went. Okay? So we know that even up till the late 200s, early 300s, we still had that as a national precedence from Nero to others okay? with the Christians, with Rome. All right. It really didn't change until Constantine came along about 300s, where we're talking about going from AD 33 to AD 300, before the organized Roman persecution of Christians was really kind of set to rest. All right. So there was a most most proximal fulfillment of this for a couple of hundred years, where all nations didn't like us. They didn't like the Christians. They blamed the Christians for a lot of things. They would take the Christians and talk about them being atheists because they only believed in one God. And then they would start blaming everything from plagues to fires on Christians. Nobody wanted them around. Okay? That's why a lot of them hid. But that's what you kind of saw in, in those first few hundred years. So this fulfillment of all nations will hate you, congratulations, you are going to fulfill that. Okay? And he talks about the internal strifes. He talks about brother rising up against brother, sister against sister. Jesus has already talked about this before. Jesus told them way back in Matthew chapter 10 that this was going to happen. You're going to see this feud develop. As you lay your life down for Christ, you are going to see those around you become hostily oppressive and oppositional to your stance. And it's not just going to be people who are atheistic, amoral, godless, heathen out there in the world. It's going to be your brother. It's going to be your sister-in-law. It's going to be your mother. It's going to be your cousins. Like, this is going to happen. They're going to turn you over. They're going to be the ones in the synagogues that are going to drag you before them and say, this is my brother who has left the faith. This is my brother who has abandoned our Jewish cause. So he said, let's look, be prepared for it. This is what I'm telling you about. Now, again, you read all this and you're like, man, Jesus, way to go out on a happy note. You've just destroyed all the ecclesiastical society there. We were really okay with that. But now you're going to come in and tell us that the next few hundred years are going to be doom and gloom and pestilence and famine and death and disease and destruction and all this. And we're supposed to be happy about it? I take it back. I don't want to know what the signs are. I don't want my... I'm taking my question back, Alex, okay? I don't want it. I don't want that answered. I'm, re, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it back. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear about it, you know? I'd rather go off in blissful ignorance, not knowing what's going to come, than to know that this is what I had to look forward to. Well, I think what is beautiful about this, okay, and really 
in all going forward from this sets the scene for all of us is this one little verse nestled or two little verses nestled in the middle of this doom and gloom. Okay. And that is where he says in verse 12, I guess I should say three, three verses, verse 12. And because iniquity or because lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then shall the end come. Okay. That's the verse that is the silver lining purposeful nugget within all of this, okay? Because nestled in what is looking like a very proximal interpretation is a very, very distal interpretation, or should I say an ongoing interpretation. That section of Scripture there, now a lot of people will take this and they'll look at that and they'll say, oh, well, see, if you just fast forward to Acts chapter 2, It says there that there were devout Jews from all the nations under heaven gathered there and they heard the gospel preached by Peter. Therefore, this prophecy has been fulfilled. The only problem with that is one, a very practical one. Number one, I know that it says every nation under heaven was gathered there. Two things to consider. Number one, It said every Jew from every nation under heaven, okay? Number two, we know that's not accurate, okay? We know there were not Far Eastern Asians there. We know there were not Japanese there. We know there were not Native Americans there. We know that there were not Mongolians there. We know that there were not probably people from the British Isles at this point there. So the idea that all nations heard the gospel message in Acts chapter 2 is just not accurate. And I think if you actually look at the context of what he's describing, that's not what he was saying, okay? So no, it cannot be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, right? The other reason is because it says all nations and all kingdoms to bear witness, and then the end will come, okay? So this isn't speaking at this point in time just about the end of the Jewish nation because why on earth would all nations in all places everywhere need to hear the gospel before the Jewish nation was destroyed in A.D. 70? Well, they don't. It has no point to them. It has no bearing on their existence. That's not the point, okay? What he's doing here and what I think is the most important thing to grab from this When you see him telling them here that what you're seeing around the world is all of this stuff going to pot, okay? Everything's falling apart. There's going to be all these things being destroyed. You're going to be persecuted. All of this. What you're going to get in your mind if you're these Jewish apostles and disciples is going, well, how are we going to survive? If we're all going to die and we're the gospel bearers, how's your gospel going to get past A.D. 70? How's your gospel going to get past 80, 60, 50, or 40 when a lot of these guys died? How is your gospel message ever going to get 
anywhere if we're all destroyed, if we're hated by all nations, if we're persecuted, if we're killed. It doesn't sound like we're going very far from here, Jesus. And what Jesus says is, guys, don't worry about it, because what I'm telling you is, is that before the end comes, all nations will have heard this. All kingdoms will have this testimony borne witness to them because it is a judgment against them. I mean, that's what he says. So he's lining this to say, guys, as bad as all this sounds, I want you to remember something. I want you to hold on to something that all nations are going to hear this. Now, for you... You've only grabbed like a few nations at this point. We look at it and go, man, there was a lot of people going on, a lot of nations, a lot of kingdoms, a lot of inhabitants all around the world, different languages, different tongues, different kingdoms, different people all around the world living at this time. There's Mayans and Incans and all these civilizations that are thriving and flourishing. These Jews don't know a thing about them, okay? Matthew has no clue about them. You know what Matthew knows about? Matthew knows about the Roman world, the Greek world, the Arabian world, the Northern African world. They know the Roman areas. They know what they have been given by the intelligentsia of the days of what they could comprehend. Okay? So we know, though, that Jesus is giving you a bigger world picture with this. Remember, when you look at Paul's writings to the church at Thessalonica, Second Thessalonians... Chapter 1, verse 7, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The judgment that God places on the nations, okay, when we get to the last time, the judgment he places on the nations, part of that is, you did not obey the gospel, okay? You did not hearken to the words that I sent to you. I'm holding that up as judgment against you. Remember, we talk about this a lot on Wednesday night. There's no place where Jesus at the end of days goes, I really hate you didn't know. You got to go to hell anyway. I really hate that you didn't understand. You still got to go to hell. I really hate that all of this happened to you and you really had no other way of knowing about any of it. It's just a poor luck of the draw on your hand. Goodbye, you're going to hell. Every occurrence of it, he says, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you're in rebellion. It's rebellion. That's their, that's their fault. That's what they get sent to hell for. Okay, And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you have disobeyed. You are not in obedience to me. You have rebelled. Ergo, you will go where all rebels go, where Satan and his eight rebel angels go. And that is to the place that is prepared for rebels. So when Jesus is talking here, though, he says, my gospel is going to be preached among all nations. There's not going to be people, nations, kingdoms, anybody who's going to stand up at the last day and go, well, Jesus, if you had just told us, we would have believed and obeyed you. 
He says, no, everybody's going to have, there's not going to be anybody without excuse. The only answer you're going to be able to give in that day is I rebelled against God and I'm rightly receiving what I deserve for rebellion. Okay. So that's the scene he sets there here. He says, guess what? Here's the silver lining. As bleak as it may look, I want you to recognize that I am going to continue this beyond this immediate or proximal interpretation. There's going to be a gospel witness in all nations in generations to come. Now, a lot of people will say, well, that's why we have to try to get the gospel to every person or every kingdom. Because once we get them all, boom, it's done. And that's the Zionism movement. That's a lot of people in that camp that look that way at this verse of scripture. But that's not what, not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says over and over again, that day is up to God and God alone. You can't work it one way or the other. Okay. So here, though, we do need to take solace in this because this is this is the beautiful, awesome part of this prophecy, as bleak as it sounds. The reason this is beautiful and awesome and amazing to to us is because this directly applies to us. This is what we're still a part of. We are a part of this witness, this testimony. We are the continuing believers of the kingdom of God who are continuing the witness to all nations of his glorious gospel. We're a part of this. We are a part of this big, amazing story. Okay. So as this is getting so bleak and looking so bad and everybody's going, oh man, this doesn't look like I really want to be a part of this. We get to go, oh, but look at this silver lining in this. Look at how even in this darkest night, you're going to see joy coming in the morning. Look at how through all of the persecution, all the destruction, all the death, all the gloom, you're going to see this gospel continue on past this, but more so continue on in this. Okay. That's probably the most impactful point of this. Notice how he says, as everything starts getting worse and worse, what you're going to see too is that love itself is going to start waxing cold. Two different ways you could interpret that. The very natural, very, has nothing to do with God, one person loving another and doing loving things towards somebody. That in and of itself, the love of the world itself growing colder. And you can also see disciples, people who know God and know what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, i.e. what we've been talking about for two years, loving God, loving your neighbors, that love in and of itself growing cold. It, it's bad on both situations. When you see people who are more easily in hatred of their fellow man than they are in love, there's a problem. And we see that. I mean, hey, how many of us have ever flipped on Fox News? How many of us have ever flipped on CNN or MSNBC or any of the other ones? How many of you have scrolled through your Facebook uh, feed? How many of you have ran through your Twitter feed? How many of you have flipped through Instagram and all these other things? Let me ask you this. How much negative stuff do you see? How many statements do you see about bombing the Middle East and turning it all to glass because of all those people over there? How many statements do you see about murdering people here in the U.S.? 
How many statements do you see about killing refugees trying to come in through the southern border? How, many, how much of that stuff do you see on a day-to-day basis on Facebook that's just thrown out there like, like, it's, like it's okay? Like that's an acceptable attitude to have? Like that's at any point in time been okay to agree with? In America right now, statistics show that about 75% of Americans identify as Christian. That's down from 85% in 1990. Okay? Suicide rates from 1990 to 2016 are up 24%. Do you feel like we as a society nationally and maybe even internationally are more or less civilized than we used to be? What we see going on here is the love of man waxing cold. To where just normal decency between one person and another is going completely out of vogue. Where in fact, the opposite is true. It is better, it is more exciting, it's more thrilling to be a part of a group on Facebook or wherever, that will spit vitriol and hate, then it's just accepted as normal. It's accepted that this is okay. That that's just the society that we live in. That that's just where we're at. That these things are so polarizing that we can line up on these opposite ends and start hating one another, and that's an okay thing. Do we see how the society as a whole has been dangerously sliding down that hill for so many years. The love is completely waxing cold. But even worse than that, in my opinion, and what I've really been trying to hit us on, is our love as professing Christians is becoming non-existent. It's waxing cold. When he says, love your neighbors, even that's becoming difficult for us. Notice that you don't hear a lot of sermons talked about loving your enemies, right? How many of those have you heard? I know you've heard a lot of them in the last two and a half years. But before that, in all honesty, how many sermons have you heard someone exegesing love your enemies? And how you do that? Well, because that fell out of fashion a long time ago. That was out of fashion in the apostles' days. That's why Jesus had to tell them, hey, you know what? This is what I'm commanding you. But now even the love of your neighbor is becoming out of vogue. Loving your neighbor as we're called to is not becoming the common thing to do. In fact, even if your neighbor is a Christian, even if your neighbor is a fellow believer, even if your neighbor is someone who sympathizes with you on nearly every level, you may have a hard time showing love to them. And heaven help them if they're a Democrat and you're a Republican. Because automatically you look at them like they're ignorant, stupid, and some lower form of life. So when the love of Christians starts waxing cold, number one, I don't want to hear any complaining about the society then. I don't want to hear Christians going on about how bad the world is when you yourself are not doing what Christ commanded you to do. Because how... On God's earth, do you expect the society to be any different, in particular when their salt and light is completely void? 
How can you expect them to be anything different? Why would you expect them? And who gives you the self-righteous pedestal to stand on and go, well, look at how good we are. But everybody else is just terrible, awful. Look at all them. Well, what are you doing about it? What's your attitude? What fun little things do you repost about Mexicans coming across the border on Facebook? What fun little things do you post about the Middle East? What things do you put on Facebook? How much stuff do you like on Twitter? How, how much of that are we allowing ourselves to get involved with? Because if we're doing it, there's, there's no hope. There's no hope for the society around us if we are not even taking to heart the things that Jesus commanded us to do. So here, when he talks about the love growing cold, that is such a stark, bleak prophecy. Now, everything else you look at and you're like, oh man, that sounds bad. That right there, that really sets the scene. That's the darkest. When that starts going away, we really have a problem. What's what's the inhibition then? What's holding anything back? The morals of a country that can be one thing yesterday and something else tomorrow? There's no groundwork for that. Your own self-preservation, your own self-determination, deciding who gets to be liked. and I mean, that just gets worse and worse and worse. And then we start wondering why there's more mass shootings. Well, it's because people have no regard for anybody's life. They don't care. So these, this is how this starts going downhill. That's why you see the degrading of society. You see geopolitical unrest, which leads to famine and pestilences. You have natural disasters with further leads to pestilences and famines. You have false prophets and deceivers who stir up the people. False hopes, stoking anxieties and fears. Demagogues fomenting unrest. Can't tell you how many of those are on Facebook right now. And ultimately, when the world is so bleak and so full of destruction, so beset by hopelessness, even love will fail. And I think we're, if we're not heading in that direction, we are way down in that direction. But this is what, in this bleakness, even as we're looking at it today, this is where Jesus left his apostles, and I leave us, hopefully today, with this hope. What is is the gospel message. What is the gospel message that Jesus preached, that his apostles preached, that every disciple preached, and that hopefully we preach? It is ultimately a message of love, isn't it? Isn't it Jesus that said, here's your message that you need to preach. Obey my commandments. And what are my commandments? That you love God and you love your neighbor. Love. I mean, that was the, that's the basics. That was like the root thing. That's like the number one thing to get. He said out of all of it, of everything, all that has been circulated around what is called Christianity, he said, these two things are it. He says, this is it. He said, everything in the past, everything in the future, all the law, all the prophets, this is what it comes down to. This is your existence as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be one of my disciples, that you love one another. That was the root. He even said that. He said, that's how you're going to be identified. That's how people are going to know you're my, follower, my disciple, because you love one another. He said, that's going to set you apart. 
Well, that's a good thing because you know how that sets you apart from the world? Because the rest of the world is losing love. The rest of the world, love is waxing cold. The rest of the world, as all of this starts degrading and being demolished and everything gets worse and worse and worse, love starts trending in that fashion as well. More people are saying, I don't need to take care of you. I don't care about you. I'm all about me and preserving myself. And it's all about me, 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 and I, 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 and what I want to get out of this. And where Christians can make a bold statement is we step in and we start showing love to a bunch of people that nobody is going to love. We show how loving we are. In fact, we show that that's just who we are. That's us. We're not doing it because we work for United Way or we want to get a merit badge. We do it because that's just what Jesus did for me. That's my life. That's what I'm doing for him. That's what I'm doing for you because he has put this love within me. That's part of those fruit that come in the spirit. I have love. I can't help it. feels like that should be like a Beatles or a Monkey song or something should come out of that one, okay? So that's, that's though what we are. You know, that's where it, when I've used this over and over and over again. But, you know, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2 where Christ says, You are my workmanship. I created you this way. You are my workmanship that you should do good works. I before ordained it, okay? Now, some people want to argue about should and would in that. And what I always say is, when I have a car that's created to crank when I stick a key in it, guess what it does 90% of the time? Cranks, right? How often does your car not crank? 10% of the time? 5% of the time? Less than 1% of the time? It's always good to have an engineer with, like, good, you know, consumer report guidelines back there. Less than 1% fail rate. The expectation is that if I stick my key in the ignition and turn it, it should crank. Correct? Why? Because it's been created that way. So you can argue all day should versus would. If it's created that way, 99% of the time, guess what it's going to do? And I just have this crazy idea that God's a better creator than Henry Ford. So if Henry Ford can get 99% of the time, I think Jesus is going to be pretty close to that, okay? So we are created for this purpose. So when he says we were before ordained that we should do this, then the expectation is 99% of the time we are going to do this. Because that's what we were created for. That's what we have been instilled with in us. That's in our hearts, okay? So this love that he has given us, it should set us apart because it's looking like in the society, we're the only ones that are doing this. Now, if we're not telling people about that, if we're not acting in that way, who do we expect to do this? Now, again, speaking of demagogues and bandwagons and everything, like we talked about last time, people want to all jump up and talk about how if we just had prayer in schools, everything would be better. Wrong. If Christians did what they were commanded to do, things might be better. But just doing artificial religious stuff is never going to make a change in society. It's just not. What has always made the change. In fact, when you look during these dark days of the Roman Empire, when the Christians were persecuted the most, they also flourished the most. They were growing so fast that the Roman Empire couldn't keep a lid on them. You say, well, that doesn't make sense because they were being persecuted and killed and murdered and rounded up and destroyed. How could they be growing in that? Because they were doing what God told them to do. 
And they were having such a profound, crazy impact on the society that the society was going, well, I mean, we could keep killing them, but look at them. Look at their relationships. Look at how they love their wives and their husbands. Look how they only have one wife and one husband. How crazy is that? But look at it and look how it works and look how their families are and look how their kids are and look how they take care of their neighbors. Do you remember the other day when I had the plague? Guess who was the only person who came and visited me? That crazy Christian down the street. And that went on. You can look at, well, Pliny, I think, Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger, one of the two. They wrote a letter as when they were writing back to the emperor of Rome. They wrote a letter. And again, this is so like not me to grab out random historical thing without actually having it written down. But they wrote a letter. And in his letter, what he wrote back to the emperor was, is this city, so-and-so city, is afflicted with the plague. We've pulled all of our people out. But it is kind of crazy because there's this whole group of the people that call themselves Christians who are still there. They're still there. And you know what they're doing? They're taking care of all those people who were left behind. They have, no, they have disregard for their life, disregard for their potential to get the plague. They have stayed behind. We've pulled all our people out. The Romans are safe. But these people who were left with the plague, there's all these Christians down there taking care of them. They're crazy. That was noted about Christians in a time when those same Christians were treated as non-citizens, thrown to lions, crucified, playthings for Rome. But their love was so amazing that it ended up uprooting the world and causing the Roman Empire, despite the fact that it probably was not ever really fully Christian, Changing the entire Roman Empire's paradigm. That's how miraculous the love of Christians can change a nation. But we got to be doing that. And what's so amazing about this big story that we're a part of that hopefully we'll get to next time is that this is this is what we get to do. We get to be a part of this. I don't know what all the nations are and how all that gets encompassed and when the final day drops. I don't know all that. All I know is, is that as the sun keeps rising, we're still a part of this story and we're still a part of this wonderful prophecy of reaching all nations as a witness and a testimony to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And how God's love permeating through us can have an effect in every society around the world. And either that's effect is positive in changing people's hearts and minds, maybe used as a condemnation against them. But either way, we get to continue on this beautiful story as we go through our lives. So we're not here purposefully or purposelessly. We're here purposefully, okay? We're here carrying on this thing that Jesus talked about some 2,000 years ago. So let us embody that. Let that be our mission statement. Let that be what drives us tomorrow. That we're a part of this great big story. So may God bless us to work on that.